Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. And I'm Will. How are we doing, boys? I'm great. Surviving. We're surviving. That's great. So we are here to introduce a interview that we had uh, the other day with Fran Wild, and I'm very excited for folks to listen to this. Patreon folks got this a day early, which is awesome, which is a perk for being a Patreon uh, patron of the show. So just super quick, we have, like I said, if you didn't hear it in the last episode, we have updated our Patreon um, tiers and the things that you get. So $10 and up, you get you get daily writing prompts, which is awesome. And we are super excited about our new patron, Debbie. We're going to give you a shout out whether you want it or not. So you're welcome. Debbie. Debbie, 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 Debbie. So thanks for being a patron of the show. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, so guys, at the top of the show, we usually talk about Patreon and social media and stuff like that. So definitely follow us on Instagram and Twitter and all those things and like us and share us and, you know, tell your friends. It'd be awesome. Also, if everyone can review us on Apple podcasts, we need some reviews, five stars, of course, because Apple has weird algorithms and the more that you star us, the more we'll actually get more and, uh, bigger listeners absolutely so thanks to everybody who is listening and sharing us out and we really really do appreciate that so this interview guys uh i'm pretty stoked about folks to listen to this so uh quick takeaways before we get into it we interviewed fran wild who wrote uh, the book riverland which we talk about quite a bit on the episode but we talk about a lot of other things as well so takeaways guys Hey, I'll go to get this one started here. My biggest takeaway, because this is a middle grade novel that is about domestic violence. I got permission, in a sense, to talk about the hard things in life um, from a perspective that isn't driven by the media or what the, the general population of the world perceives something looks like. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I really enjoyed she she put out several little uh, i just want to say nuggets of wisdom as far as getting into publishing um staying true staying you know keep writing and all those things we kind of talk about on this show but just to keep motivating and and keep moving um and getting better honestly and and giving yourself permission to um you know to explore different things as well so like i said we did talk about her career various careers in you know she was a programmer for a bit uh she worked in software development all that kind of stuff and it's really really cool just to see where how she got from where she was to where she is now um and and like i said i think you guys will really enjoy this interview minor spoilers for riverland of course as well but will what do you think about this interview um i got to meet fran in 2019 at futurescapes and i've gotten a chance to talk to her sporadically for the last two years um i love fran i think she uh is the modern neil gaiman um and i really mean that because she writes with such lyrical prose and riverland to me is a um it's like she's a myth maker so it feels like a tale we've heard but we haven't and it deals really well into the idea of you know domestic violence and abuse in homes. So everyone should read the book and be inspired by the story itself, but also uh, the way that Fran writes is just really beautiful and amazing. Awesome. Well said. And, and so big shout out. Thank you so, so much, Fran, for being on the show with us. We had a, an amazing time and I hope our listeners really appreciate um, 
the interview. And anything else before we get into it, guys? I think that's it. I think we're good. Um, Mick, do you have anything else you'd like to add? If you were looking to pick up Riverland or any other book written by Fran, you can find the link in the show notes, guys. We're working with different affiliate programs. So as always, please purchase through our links. It will help us out and grow our podcast and help us give out better content. Absolutely. And we really appreciate everybody who's been supporting the show. Uh, So thanks for that. And uh, without further ado, enjoy the interview with Fran Wild. All right. And joining us this week is Fran Wild. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hi, you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. We're super excited to talk. So, Will, I'll, I'll, I'll hand it over to you like I always do, man. So, you go ahead and lead in with the questions. You got them. So, Fran, I asked this of all of our guests, the first question, because it always leads with interesting results. So, I want you to describe your writing career in three words. Panic, luck, and community. So, now I want us to kind of just break that down. So let's start with the first word of panic. I'm pretty on the record as saying that I'm a deadline-driven person. um, And people logically infer that that means I'm organized and a big planner. And to a certain extent, I am. But deadlines for me are all about adrenaline. Um, I tend to really like having them because that means that there is... um, a sense of obligation to something. If you say you're going to do something, then you have this aspect of deadlines ahead of you. Um, I was a programmer and a game developer and uh, I was in tech for a while. And I was also um, doing a lot of different uh, types of writing and concept management projects before I became a novelist. Mm -hmm. And so I was working corporate side a lot. I was working in tech a lot um, where the deadlines are many and they seemed at the time um, very fast paced. So I I started saying that deadlines are the perfect combination of um, panic, obligation and the apocalypse because there is a sort of, you know, do it or die sort of sense. Um, I have since come to revise that given publishing because publishing deadlines are um, kind of a fluctuating state rather than a one-time thing. Um, They come back around a lot. You can turn something in on deadline and see it again very quickly for your next deadline, or there can be a big lag in between times where you pick up other things. Um, So panic is, is a good thing sometimes, but it's also something you need to manage. And you need to moderate a little bit. And it helps me manage lots of different projects mm-hmm. um, across the board. Now, um, I instead of deadlines being the apocalypse, now it has changed. Um, deadlines for me are a lot like plate spinning, where you work on a bunch of different things at the same time. It's sort of multitasking. You, you put plates on sticks <laughs> and you just go around and give them each a spin um, so that they don't fall off. And that is uh, pretty much how I define my publishing career right now, especially. Um, I've got a lot of projects going. I've got a lot of things that I'm very excited about, including um, teaching and also novels and short stories and some really cool collaboration projects I'm doing. And um, it's, it's, it's a freelancing job. 
writing is a freelancing job. So if you are a lifelong freelancer, you also are probably nodding along to the sound of my voice when I say it is nearly impossible to say no, especially if the thing is really cool. And so that is also part of panic. (laughs) Yeah. So before we get into the next one, if you don't mind, um, I'm a big gamer geek. I've been in gaming communities my for since I was since I got my first Nintendo. Uh, I'm just curious. Um, just real quick, what did you work for? Or who did you work for? I just I just have uh, to know. I'm no sorry. big, <laughs> no big companies whatsoever. I did a lot of educational gaming. Okay. Uh, I was working for uh, the YMCA of London through a, a subsidiary. I worked for a lot of third party contractors okay. doing different things. Um, I was. Uh, it depended on the who hired me. I did a lot of work for ad agencies doing little little games and little um, job, mostly JavaScript yeah. stuff. Nothing um, C sharp scares me to death. <laughs> my last programming language was PHP. Uh, I so most of my projects were actually small market, um, no big names. I worked with a lot of people who were um, doing really cool stuff elsewhere. But you know, I I did a lot of sort of nonprofit. I, couple of government jobs, you know, this and that. Awesome. Yeah, um, I was just, I was mostly I was, I was a good for hire because I had um, the experience doing inter- just H, you know, everything up from HTML all the way through. I taught um, graduate programs in computer design. I have, a, I have a master's in information architecture and interaction design oh, wow. as well. So I could go in and project manage. I could talk to people about um, user-centric design. Um, I could, I am a writer by trade and by practice. So I was a copy editor for a long time for different groups and I have, um, some typography stuff under my belt and some graphic design as well. So occasionally clients would be like, Oh, well, we hired you for this, but we're going to ask you to do this as well. And, um, they, they soon came to realize that it was all the same price because it's all the, it's all the same time. Um, and so they weren't getting any bigger deal, but I ended up managing a lot of sort of uh, international projects for different clients. And that was really fun. Sounds awesome. amazing. <laughs> it was, it was um, high burnout. Yeah. And it was uh, back in the bad old days where um, there were, there was a lot of money mm-hmm. and very little sense for how to monetize certain kinds of games, especially educational for gaming. Sure. Um, so things were happening, but they were happening in weird sort of bubbles and things. And everybody was waiting for lots of stuff that didn't necessarily drop, um, everything from, you know, certain laws that never shifted the way that people thought they were going to shift, which was fine. Um, to certain technology never being quite there. Makes sense. Magically, I'm looking at you. Um, there's so much else out there that, that has the potential to be great. And we're all super hopeful for that in the future. Um, because I would love to write for games like that. I would love to, you know, I can't program anymore. That's the <laughs> thing. When you stop, your code goes away. Right. Um but I, you know, I'd love to be back involved with something like that eventually, maybe someday. Yeah, I've always, I've always wanted to be in the game industry and writing for games, not programming. I've tried programming, and that's just my my brain doesn't do it. It's really difficult. I teach a tech class as at the high school I work at, but it's like mm-hmm. it's all software stuff, not programming, because it's just not it's out of my wheelhouse for sure. But so I love like object oriented programming yeah. is great. I love. Um, I really love scripting mm-hmm. uh, more than anything. A lot. I mean, I will. I will tell you exactly how old I am. Um, my 
first big projects were done in um, both Cold Fusion, like Cold Fusion 2. And um, if I say Director 8, I don't know if that's going to make sense to anybody, Uh, but that is a really old program that came out of Macromedia. And I think Macromedia bought it from somebody else. But I, um, for my graduate uh, project, I reset um, Borges' The Book of Sand in Director 8 so that it would be an infinite book. Oh, wow. Because that's what it's about as an infinite book. So. Um, I really, I love things that do what they say on the tip. Sure. <laughs> I'm actually amazing. In less than 10 days, I'm starting a coding boot camp. So Ooh. hearing all this, I'm just like, oh, exciting and not exciting. I'm terrified. <laughs> it's, it's a great way to sort of recalibrate your thought process. Mm-hmm. Sure. Especially if you're also doing other things. Um, for me, I came to programming as a poet. Um, and my first uh, scripting language was HTML way early in the game. Um, I loved it. I loved the fact that you could make things do stuff, right. mm-hmm. especially animations, especially like scalable vector graphics you could play with. And this, you know, now it's a little bit different, but programming is so much fun. I, so there's pre-work I have to do for this course and I have, I'm loving it so far, but I'm already finding like, I want to know UX design already. Like I, that's, that's kind of what I'm gravitating towards because it, it is a little bit more artsy in that fact that there's so mm-hmm. much you can do with it compared to HTML and CSS now. So, Oh yeah. I mean, I own the mug, the CSS mug <laughs> that, you know, where, where you've got the box and then the text is running out of the box. <laughs> um, you can find it online. It's, it's, it, <laughs> but I do. I the the place that I have always wanted to be is where story and visuals and code intersects in a way that lets people play with the, their own situation. I love cinema, but I would much rather be. Um, if you've read Neil St- Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Age, I would much rather there be interactives and reactives, um, which are sort of coming to pass in different ways. Like Then She Fell um, is a great sort of publicly played interactive, but it's not programmed. Um, I'd like to see more of those. I think we're going to probably, especially with this stuff that's happening now, it's a great opportunity to to try and do some more interactive plays that way, but we haven't quite seen it yet. Everybody's still kind of missing the past rather than right. getting and moving forward. <laughs> uh, I'm ready for the future. I'm bring on the right. new. Well, I derailed us pretty quick there. So we're on the second word, which is luck. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Luck. So we're talking about my publishing career. Are we talking about like all of, all, all of this because. So luck, whatever you want, if it's your whole writing career or if it's specifically publishing, whatever that word brings to mind. I think, you know, publishing is 100% not a meritocracy. Um, Publishing is being in the right place at the right time. Um, holding the right thing with the stars all aligned. And even then, maybe not having it be 100% go the way that you want it to go. The kick is that luck is definitely part of it, but you don't get to be in the position where luck can strike if you don't put in the work first if you don't put in sort of the hours and and the effort and reach out and connect with people and be willing to be flexible so that you know you may want x 
and you'll meet somebody who doesn't necessarily have X, but they have Y and they're willing to share it with you. If, you know, that sort of thing is, is always, um, kind of under the radar, especially in publishing, but it works for lots of different, um, places as well. There, there are so many good writers out there who are, um, submitting work to publications and going through the slush piles and who sees what and when it's a matter of right desk, right day, right time, all of those different combinations of things and strong writing and really, really, you know, pushing your work. So I feel like in part, I've been very lucky. Um, I've been very lucky to be able to set aside some time um, early on to go to Viable Paradise. Um, my daughter was six. I had been um, working and teaching and being, you know, a parent for a long time. And I said, I need a week just to do this. There was no way I could get more than a week because I had lots of people I was taking care of, um, but I could do a week. And I had been sort of doing writing on the side for a while, you know, middle of the night sort of thing. I had a public, I had a um, completed my MFA in poetry uh, back when I was in my early twenties. And so I had all of this material, but I hadn't been able to give it focus or, um, and, and the thing I tell my students all the time is that if you, you don't put your writing first, nobody else is going to, nobody's yeah. going to come up to you, ring your doorbell and be like, Hey, you know, you could be a really great writer. Let me just give you five hours every day to go see how you're going to do that. No, nobody's going to nobody's going to do that even when you're published. You have to carve out the time and say, this is the writing time that I am going to take and put that first. And everybody else kind of goes, oh, okay. And then they figure out how to work around you. And I feel very lucky that I was able to do that. And it comes and goes. So just like luck comes and goes. Sometimes I don't have that time. Um, but I feel like you make your own luck as well. Sometimes, um, there are times when I haven't been so lucky. There have definitely been, um, someone once asked, uh, my husband, the chemist who's, if you follow me on Twitter, um, which is Fran underscore wild, the, um, somebody, uh, I, I refer to the chemist a lot mm -hmm. and that's because is a chemist and he's, he's not on social media. He, he, you know, leaned over the other day and went, what's a gender reveal party? Is that for adults? <laughs> That's <laughs> went, hilarious. Yes, pretty much for adults. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> you've missed a lot of stuff. Um, but he, somebody asked him once what it was like being married to a writer. And I had just published Updraft. And he thought for a minute, and usually he has to think for a lot longer than that, because he's kind of an int you know, where I, where I go very fast and do a lot of stuff. He's an end. He, he went for a second and he just looked up and he went, there's a lot of crying. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally true. Um, because luck is luck is a double-edged sword. You, when you have it, it's great. When something is going exactly right, it's wonderful. When your luck isn't quite there for you or when it turns, you know, out that what you really wanted wasn't necessarily what you needed at the time. Um, or vice versa, what you needed wasn't there. It's frustrating and it's really hard. So luck 
is the reason why I, I, I said luck is because I feel like I've been very, very lucky to be able to do that first um, Viable Paradise connection, be able to teach at Futurescapes, mm-hmm. which I've done for four years, met all of you fabulous <laughs> people, you know, and and gotten to meet a lot of other people on my travels as I went to teach. Um, but I also put in a lot of time. Um, and that's part of luck too. Even as I was putting my husband through his PhD program, I was teaching um, in the Baltimore County schools. I was uh, doing poets in the school work. I was connecting with the writing communities wherever I was. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always trying to up my game. I was taking classes all over. Even, you know, I finished my master's um, in poetry. And then a couple years later, went back for my, my master's in information design. And people were like, why, why would you do that? And I thought, because I like to learn and I always like to make sure that I am as flexible as possible. Um, probably the, those were really good decisions at the time, especially the, the computer, uh, degree, but it turns out that the MFA in poetry has served me longest. Um, yeah, just like the, I'm still in touch with my teachers. I'm still in touch with my my cohort, um, which was uh, a very small, low residency program in Asheville, North, North Carolina, called uh, Warren Wilson College. Yeah. Um, the, and I came I came out of there with a poetry MFA, so they're still a little confused about what I'm doing now. <laughs> but the that's also because it's a very literary MFA, and genre is a completely different subject. Sometimes, um, I think things are changing. I think in that sphere, um, academic studies in genre is a thing now, which is great. And also, um, there is a lot. There are a lot more authors who are trying genre styles and trying different methods um, out for, you know. But I, because I work almost expressly in genre now, you know, I get to go around to conventions with a dragon on my shoulder <laughs> if I want to, and I love it. and it's wonderful. The other thing, though, is that I have always done multiple things. Mm-hmm. And that o- kind of opens the door to luck as well, because something might not be ready to do in one field. But you may be, you know, s- standing on the on the edge of something in another field. And so making yourself as open to possibility as possible is is part of luck as well. So which brings us to community. Describe that for us. Uh, found family has always been part of my life. Um, from a very young age, um, from summer camp on through my friends at school and college and everywhere, it's always been really important to connect on sort of the level of, if you need me, I'll be there. But also, um, not not looking at people for what they can do for me, but looking at people for you know how do we strengthen the community? How do we how do we reach out and find new ways of doing things? And also, what am I interested in doing that that, that is um, a need in the community? Because I don't I don't think you will ever see me in a position um, like president of CIFWA or vice president of CIFWA. Mary Mary Robinette is so good at that. Mm -hmm. And I cannot stand that sort of thing. I don't like to um, be in that kind of position. What I do love to do is I love to be in a position that allows for um, collaborating with different people 
and coordinating different things. I was the um, the elections coordinator at CIFWA for a long time. And um, that is an opportunity to reach out to different people in different areas and say, hey, you want to run for office? And usually they run away from you, <laughs> but sometimes they don't. And that's when you get a whole new group of people in. And it's really, really great. So sort of community is about... Um, you know, serving when you can, in, especially in volunteer positions. Um, I try to do that in every community I've ever lived in uh, as well. But it's also about um, doing things like um, I, I have run an interview podcast called Cooking the Books mm -hmm. for um, since 2011. And um, it's on a small hiatus now, but my, my co-host uh, and I, Elliot de Bodard, have interviewed over 70 um, authors, editors, agents, um, publishers about food and fiction. And at the time that we started this, food was not a big topic. Now there's like 16 food blocks and that's <laughs> or 16 fiction blocks. It's totally great. I am super, super excited about this. When we started it, it was our motto was um, no character stars today because there would be characters who would go for months without eating or drinking anything. And they were not dead. And I always had questions about why. Um, and to go back to Viable Paradise for a second, because this is specifically about writing, I had been out of the community in some senses for a long time especially when you are raising a young family or when you are engaged in, you know, a big project or, you know, intense work, sometimes you can lose your connections to community. You can, you know, take a step back or fall out of communication with people and going to something like Viable Paradise or Tao's Toolbox or any of the you know, smaller writing workshops or communities, Futurescapes is an excellent example um, or connecting with a master's program means that you are um, reconnecting with what you are, what you love on a professional basis with other people also connecting on a professional basis. It's different than going to conventions. Conventions are great, but some people are at conventions to play. Some are there to hang out. Some are there to learn things and mostly all three but it's a blend. When you engage with something like a, a writing workshop or a writing retreat, everybody's there to write. Mm -hmm. And so connecting with Viable Parodies for me brought me back into a community and introduced me to a lot of people. Um, and I found that so valuable, but I also sat down at some point with Stephen Gould and we were talking about recipes because we were just talking about cooking. And I made a joke that, um, my mother-in-law had given me a very old cookbook that had some really off-color, terrible recipes as jokes in the back. And um, one of those was a recipe for elephant stew, which, like I said, off-color, terrible recipes. Um, my mother-in-law was in the Foreign Service, and this was a Foreign Service, you know, women's auxiliary cookbook. Oh, wow. And the instruction for elephant stew, the first instruction is first cut elephant into bite-sized pieces. <laughs> oh, and wow. I told Stephen Gould that, you know, knowing very little about who he was or what he'd written and how amazing he is. And he was very kind to me. And he said, you know, that sounds a lot like the instructions for writing a novel. First cut novel into bite-sized pieces. And I thought, hey, you know what? that would be really fun to do a podcast about writing and food. And he was my first guest. Oh, and then amazing. I think uh, after a little while, I, you know, interviewed um, Joe and J Joe and Gay Haldeman um, after someone in the local community introduced me to them at, a, at world fantasy 
Um, and that was amazing. So just the ability to talk to people and ask questions and connect on that level, um, I think is really, really vital part of the community, but it's also doing something where you're creating a fabric. Um, between lots of different people and connections between lots of different people. Um, so you kind of make your own community, learn to participate in others' communities. And um, at the end of the day, I think that's one of the things that I love most about this career is that you have the opportunity day in and day out to connect with other people and sort of forge your own community, but also participate in everybody else's as well. Yeah, I love that you said that because for me, going to Futurescapes was a game changer. It really was because, and it was really about the people that I met in my group, um, yeah. especially my first year going. All of us still talk. We all have a critique group. <laughs> we really connected and we really feel like we lucked out with each other. Um, and it's really amazing to um, see them succeed. Like um, my friend Ahmet is uh Tor just bought um, his short story. Oh, that's so great. You know, and like my friend you Samin. tell me that. Got, yeah, Samin <laughs> yeah. just got into um, like three different um, magazines. And like my friend Elena is like won the screenwriting um, contest. So it's really interesting to see where all of us are, what we're doing and like where we're landing. And it's just been really encouraging because it's, you really feel their energy because their energy is there's room for all of us to succeed. That, And I think that's part of what people forget, that everybody can succeed. It's not one person is taking something away from you if they win. It's everybody is succeeding together. And people, especially writing groups, people succeed at different rates. Mm -hmm. But that is actually, and it's not sort of, oh, I got ahead, so now I'm leaving you all behind. You know, you may be more busy once you finish a project or you get you get that win. But if you... If you stick with that group, however you can, you're going to see their stars rising and be able to celebrate them. And they're going to be able to, you know, buoy you up when things are tough. And it's a community. It's not a race. Yeah. It's not something you win and leave everybody else behind. It's, it's you know, the opportunities are there for everybody. And sometimes those are the people who will then be starting a magazine or mm -hmm. trying something new and if, you know, they'll call you up and be like, hey, did you want to try this? This would be, We'd love to have you here. Yeah. And that's, you know, it, it, people sometimes feel like the only product of a writing life is the book. And that's not true. Yeah, right. At all. And I think also because for that reason, they want to be told, they want to be, they go to things wanting to hear that they're a writer. And not just that they're a writer, but that they're a good writer. And maybe not that they're just a good writer, but they're the best writer. And yes, ambition is awesome. Absolutely. Go out there and, you know, definitely try to write the most amazing thing you possibly can. But your writing is not who you are. Your writing is part of what you yeah. are, but it's not who you are. Yeah. And that is the, that's the difference. If you are in the engaged in the act of writing, you are a writer, mm -hmm. and you there is never going to be a point where you are the best writer. 
because every success you have, there is the angel on the left shoulder and the angel on the right shoulder or the devil on the left shoulder and the devil on the right shoulder that is like, okay, that's great. Good job. And the other one's like, well, what have you done lately? That was like yesterday. <laughs> How are you going to, you know, you need to top that. You need to stay in the game. And I have those. I There was a... Um, an art project I did with Kickstarter a couple of years ago called the um, Museum of um, Errant Creatures. And it was just all of the different creatures that live in writers' heads. Oh, wow. And there was one called the Despair Narwhal. <laughs> and there was another that was just called the Carousel. And the Carousel just revolved. It had eyes um, oh, and a mouth, but it just revolved. And there was a sign on one side that said, great job. And on the other side of the Carousel, it said, what have you done lately? And you just kept going around. Um yeah, I think too, is that art is also subjective. Like I think because I've worked around different forms of artists, whether it's been actors, musicians, and see people that I started working with when they were like relatively unknowns and suddenly get like huge mega pop stars or huge actors. There's also a realization that um, you could you could have this really long successful run but like everything in life specifically when it comes to creation you're going to have your down moments and and that's okay you know because sometimes it's those down moments or the quiet moments when you're not working as much or you're not being as creative as much you can recharge your juices and I think what makes writing specifically different is, and I think this is what I enjoy most about it, is that you can literally start at any age because you're not in front of a camera. You can create and connect to so many different people, no matter how old you are. Yeah, it's true. I, I didn't, I, it, so I started a lot of short stories. And I, I wrote a lot of different things as a, as a kid and in high school and in college, but I didn't finish a short story. Like I, Start, yes, finish, no, um, until 2010. Wow. That is 10 years ago. I have eight books, 52 published stories, a whole bunch of other things going on. Um, but 10 years ago, I finally said, you know what? I have to finish a story. You can't fix it. You can't revise it. You can't do anything until you fi- you finish that story. But that's 10 years of working really hard all the time and doing lots of different things for different people. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. It gets very exhausting. And there is the flip side of, you know, your community and your friends. Sometimes you might feel like they're not being there enough for you, or they might feel you're not there enough for them. And it's true. You're not. You can't be in like a billion places at once. And suddenly you have deadlines and projects. But if you've got a, a group of people who, and who's who are caring friends, they will let you know, we would love to see you, but we also understand that you're busy. And you can let other people know, you know, I would love to hear from you. I miss you. But not, you know, I don't feel like you are that you've not been there enough for me. Yeah. That's, you know, that's the different equation. And that's also really important um, to keep in mind, because sometimes Writing is a very lonely process and some of our lesser good qualities, less good qualities, I'm an English professional, (laughs) um, some of our less good qualities can sometimes come out when we are too alone and too far in our heads. Yeah. Um, Where, you know, things like, you know, you feel jealous or you feel like a, a, a fake 
you feel like an imposter and you look for your friends to tell you or to be there for you. And sometimes when they can't be there, it's rough. And, you know, I think that keeping in mind that everybody's going to have busy times and quiet times and, you know, approaching your community with is now a good time or is later a good time or is, you know, Hey, I, I need to talk to somebody. Yeah. It's a good time for you and giving them the opportunity to say now is really not a good time, <laughs> but later will be. That's the sort of thing that I think is, it goes under the radar a lot, but it's sort of what will, what you're talking about too. Yeah. Um, that just sort of, it's, it's a fabric. It's not, you know, a straight line. Exactly. So I want us to talk about Riverland, which was your uh, middle grade novel that came out last year. And um, uh, all of us read it. I've read it a couple of times um, and we loved it. So how would you describe Riverland to our listeners? Thank you guys so much for reading it. Great book. Um <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Riverland is my debut middle grade novel. Um, it is upper middle grade. The main characters are um, seven and 12, mm-hmm. seven and 12. And um, it is a portal fantasy about domestic violence. I'm every time I talk about it, that is how I introduce it. And that's two separate things pushed together, sort of. Portal fantasies have a long history. Um, You know them um, as things that characters tend to go through into another world, a portal. It might be a wardrobe. It might be a trip to Neverland. It might be something else. But they go from the normal world into another world in order to figure out how to deal with something that they can't figure out on on the normal side. For Narnia, the portal fantasy took a bunch of kids in who had escaped London during the Blitz through a portal to another world where there was also a war on, but they got to be kings and queens and heroes. They learned about how to survive. They learned about how to rule. And then they came back to their own world with that knowledge and had to fit in, which is a whole different story. Um, for something like Peter Pan... Wendy is on the cusp of almost adulthood. She's about to become a teenager and she goes to Neverland where nobody has to grow up. And there is a whole sense of dealing with and coming to terms with the realities of the real world while also trying to fix it and learn how to deal with things. For Riverland specifically, I was very aware that the way that we as a culture portray domestic violence when it comes to how the children are portrayed is kind of a shorthand. Um, you, you see a lot of images on TV where, you know, the kids have bruises or they behave a certain way or they're broken or they, and that's air quotes. Mm-hmm. If, if, uh, if, you, if you can only hear <laughs> my for <voice>. the audio, <laughs> but, um, yeah. but they, you know, or, or there's a, there's a broken bone and then the cops come and then every, you know, everything goes into motion and the children are saved by someone else. And, um, domestic violence doesn't look like that all the time. It doesn't look like that much of the time. In fact, um, the way that we portray it in media is 
very misleading and very dangerous because a lot of the time kids are involved in covering up the situation so that the parents don't lose their jobs, so that, you know, somebody doesn't get in trouble. And they're basically co-opted into their own abuse in order to support the myth that, well, this isn't really happening, or it must have been your fault, or everything's fine now. And it's dangerous. Um, And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to put a book on the shelf for kids that may be experiencing this or maybe have a friend who's experiencing this who um, or families who are experiencing this who don't really know what that that looks like that we talk about i the the metaphor for drowning is similar that drowning doesn't always look like drowning sometimes people just go disappear and that is exactly what the problem is with the way that we as a community and a culture portray domestic violence Um, It doesn't look like that all the time. And more often than not, all of those stories that we tell on, you know, law and order, especially, Mm -hmm. um, but also pretty much all of the other narratives that you see, take the agency away from the kids. They don't have the opportunity to make their own decisions, good and bad. They don't have the opportunity to have adventures, they're just sort of pawns to be moved around. And I wanted to rewrite that and rewire that and especially tell the story with girl characters, because that's the other thing is if you put a, a young girl character in danger, um, because of course, girls are never in danger in real life. That was also air quotes. <laughs> um, there, there, there is a huge pushback. You can't do that. That's not fair. Why didn't you give her a brother? I wanted two girls to be able to have adventures, learn how to solve their own problems and be able to get themselves out of trouble because that's really important. And it's important to see on, on the shelf. The reason why I wanted that is because I'm a domestic violence survivor and I never in my life saw anything like that. My, I would be watching TV and go, well, you know, I don't have a broken arm. The cops haven't been called, so I'm fine. Yeah, This isn't, as bad as it, it could possibly be. And so Riverland is a portal fantasy where two girls go into the dream world to figure out how to solve the problems that are happening in the real world, which is a domestic violence situation. It's it's a scary one. The problem is that the portal fantasy world follows them back into the real world, and then they have to solve that too. Um, and that is what kind of happens when you do start to engage in in the the fantasy of making things up so that everything looks fine. Things start to crack and things start to break. And I wanted to tell a story about that. So that was part of the 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 big bigger deal with Riverland. There's also um, you know a lot of my own hopes and dreams in there. My, my sister and I always wanted a pony <laughs> when we were kids. Um, that, that there is, there's a saying in there that I took from real life. One of the things is when you write a book that is so close to home like this, it's really hard. Um, it, it was very hard for me to do. And I spent a lot of time uncoiling later emotionally. Um, and so don't, you know, if you try and do that as a writer, definitely have someone on standby that you can talk to who understands therapy is great, by the way. <laughs> But I, I, I wanted to tell a story that was not my own, because if I told a story that was just me and what had happened to me and to my sister, that would have been a very different kind of thing. It wouldn't have been fiction. 
it would have been, you know, something other. And I wanted this story to have growth and meaning and an arc that was, you know, outside of me and beyond me so that it could mean a lot of things to other people. But I did use that, that, you know, someday we'll have a pony. Um, <laughs> and, and there is a pony in there. There's a pony made of yep. dish rags um, and, and, and old towels. There's a heron made of driftwood and beach glass and pretty much everything in the dream world is made of things that have been thrown away. I love and that is, yeah. I love that. I think um, I was telling Marshall and Nick last night how I feel about the book. I feel like this book is, I feel like it's a myth that people are going to keep rediscovering this book, right? It reminds me of stories that I've loved, like, um, like Coraline from Neil Gaiman. I just feel like there's a there's a really beautiful rhythm in the language throughout the story that it feels like a Narnia. It but it's deeper than that and there's nuances in it. And I feel like this is gonna be a book that is gonna grow bigger every single year since it's come out. I really do. I, I really I would love I would love to see it do that. It crosses lines that some people are, un, you know, people don't want to hear that this is something that happens to, you know, to kids at all to girls, especially I've got a lot of feedback that's, you know, this is really hard to read. Like, but it's yeah. important. Sometimes the hard stuff is important to read. And we had a lot of kid readers, um, you know, early on, all the way through, I worked with educators, I worked with school nurses, I worked with school psychologists, um, we had, and the kids are like, wow, that dad was a jerk. And then they're into the adventure. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's important too. I would love to see it last. And mostly I want to see it last because I want it to be on the shelf when that one kid needs it. Mm -hmm. And the letters that I get almost on a weekly basis, even now, even a year and a half later are from people who have said, I didn't expect to see myself in a book ever in this way. I didn't expect for this to resonate. Um, I got one that um, just shook me to my core a couple of weeks ago, and I can't really go into it. But the, the end was I had been really upset with myself for so long, and this book helped me forgive myself. Wow. Um, and that, that was amazing because that's something that I had to work on for a long time. I mean, a lot of times abuse results in you feeling like it's your fault, right. no matter what, no matter how many people tell you it's not. And uh, working through that is a big, hard, ongoing thing. It's not something that you're like the light switch goes on and then it stays on. No, it's something you have to keep turning that switch. So having this book out in the world was really important to me. Um, and it's also, I wasn't supposed to write this book. Um, I wasn't planning on writing this book right away. This was the story that I was never going to tell. I had promised, you know, I had promised a lot of things, but, you know, don't write this book. Um, and then something happened, oh, I don't know, around November 2016 that just sort of flipped the, <laughs> my curse. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Feel free. So it's just sort of flipped the bucket switch. And, and I woke up one morning and thinking what, actually, I went to bed one night right around November thinking, what is the one story that I could possibly tell that no one else could tell as good as I can? What is the thing that I know best? And it was this. Yeah. Um, I can tell a lot of great stories. 
I love telling stories, but this one I knew was going to hurt telling. It was going to be damaging um, to try and write, but I needed to write it more than I needed to do anything else. If I could put one thing in this world, that was that book. Well, and I appreciate it too. As a, as a teacher for the last 12 years or so um, at high school level, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're mandated reporters when things come up, like we have to yeah. do something about it, you know? And I have students that, I think every year I can recommend something, uh, your book, I think that would really help them see, like you said, see themselves, you know what I mean? And, um, and they're not getting seen. And, and especially now that we're in a virtual uh, teaching situation, it's even harder to keep those connections and stuff. So, um, so I, when I finished it, I was like, okay, now I know a book I can recommend to students like this, that, um, that, that could use, this could see themselves, you know? And so I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you for saying that. So I just finished it myself and I was going to say, I appreciate that you didn't shy away from those hard subjects. Um, Cause I think it's something that we have to talk to our kids about. Um, yeah. I'm a new stepdad and I'm all in on that. When the kids ask a question, I'm not going to filter myself. <laughs> Gets me in trouble. Um, but I just feel like they need to know, like if they're asking, they need to know. Um, yeah, and you know, they come from a very bad situation before, where if they stayed in that situation, they'd be these kids. They and they wouldn't even realize it because they did. They wouldn't know what to ask, you know. Um, yeah. And I wanted to ask you about this too because it there's some elements that feel, uh, and I was talking to Will about this a little bit of escapism. Um, and I wanted to ask you, is there any of that in the story, any elements that you, you kind of allude, alluded to or anything like that? Because uh, I know it's a portal fantasy, but they crawl mm-hmm. underneath their bed to feel safe. And I'm like, yes, is this all in their head? <laughs> like, is this and, and are they bringing their escape world into the real world with all the leaks? Like, I think that that was um, I mean, a the the under the bed is um, and and I'm. I hit it very lightly, but Eleanor, who's the older sister, um, this, she's having trouble getting under the bed. It's a tight squeeze. She's not going to be able to hide under there for much longer. Mm -hmm. And that's that transition point. There is a lot of fake magic in this book. There's a lot of the, the mom does some, you know, magic by replacing everything and making things look perfect again. But I firmly believe that magic does enter the world, especially when you need it, not always in the ways that you're looking at it, looking for it. Um, the breaking of the witch ball may or may not have been, you know, it, it did, it definitely triggered a lot of things, but um, it's also a matter of who believes in it and who doesn't. And when, um, when this, there is a scene where the river moves with them mm-hmm. um, to a different place. And that was my, indication to people that this is this is a real thing that is happening because suddenly other people get involved and it's not just the sisters anymore um and we all have that friend (laughs) who's like what does this do and you're like no don't touch it it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and and i you know i i love that friend actually they're wonderful but it's it is a matter of okay things were coming to a point where they were they were going beyond dreams mm-hmm. and entering reality and i think that it's it's again not as black and white as we make it sometimes the imaginary does become the real mm-hmm. yeah sometimes 
things that we feel like we're sure we're imagining are actually real, but we can't quite get our heads around them. And I think when you're little and everybody else is big and telling you that you're small, um, that isn't necessarily as much escapism as it is self-protection in a yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, I think no, that makes um, sense. I, I know, Fran, when me and you talked, um, like I was telling you, like a lot of times I re- would write, especially when I was a teenager, to escape. And what I didn't realize in my writing, I didn't, didn't want to write about my own experiences, but the my own experiences started funneling in to my writing in ways mm-hmm. that I was not prepared for. So when you were writing Riverland, were you at first trying to distance yourself from the experience or were you purposely trying to move closer to that experience? Uh, the first draft was definitely me distancing myself. I, I had, I, I had a whole cast of talking socks that does do not, there's only one sock in the entire story now um, does not talk, but there were sock puns. There was, you know, lots of, lots of like, Oh, I'm going to tell you a terrible yarn and Oh darn. And (laughs) it was not good um, at all. And part of that was definitely me protecting myself and trying not to do what I needed to do, which was basically to uh, re-engage with my own trauma in order to, you know, and I have, I have worked very hard to be as strong as I possibly can and also to be as aware as I possibly can of the impacts of this going forward. Um, but I was also raised in a, in a world and in a time where this sort of thing was not something that you talked about because then you would be perceived as broken too and not as good. And that's bullshit. That's utter bullshit. If you are engaged in covering up something that happened to you rather than surviving it and getting, you know, getting the help that you need, you're going to be, be really having a hard, it's going to be harder. There's going to be a lot more pressure. I'm not quite sure that I, I, this is a good thread to go down actually. Um, let me go back because there was, there was a point there that I wanted to make, which was sort of re-engaging trauma. Um, you asked me about whether I did or didn't, um, distance yourself or move or go. Okay. So the first draft with all the talking socks, which I just mentioned, (laughs) definitely distanced myself. But, um, when I realized that what I needed to do was kind of re-engage with my own experiences, my own feelings, my own fears, and really look at that drive to make everything okay, which I do to this day, um, then I I definitely was much closer to the subject, possibly more so than I had realized I was ready for. And I don't think I was particularly ready for all of it. So the subconscious does some strange things. And one of the things that I have always done just because of who I am and also because I'm I'm a survivor is that I don't make a big deal out of something until I know I'm safe. I don't, I I definitely try not to walk into harm and Riverland was me putting out into the world. Hi, 
this happened. I am a survivor. And this was not something that I was very public about beforehand. You know, I wasn't hiding it, but I definitely didn't go announcing it. And walking into schools and having this book um, be part of a discussion. And sometimes the discussion was just about how do you um, write a book or how do you map a story? And I have lots and lots of ways to talk about that. And one of my favorite things to do with kids in schools is um, make monsters because monsters are problem solving exercises. You take a problem you embiggen it, you give it laser eyeballs and a you know flame tongue, and then you figure out how to either beat it or make friends with it or talk it down. And that's one of the one of my favorite things to do. And the monsters in in um, Riverland are m- much more nuanced in certain ways. The the nightmares just don't want to die. They you know they want to get stronger and. Um, and NASA is, is a whole other ball of wax, but she's like the mean girl of the dream right. world <laughs> and, um, and figuring out how to deal with her is scary because she's the one that has, you know, is inside your head and knows all that stuff. And when I wrote that, I had no idea that was going to come out and be part of the story, much less be as important as it was. The lighthouse was a total shock. The way that the lighthouse behaved was a surprise. But I love it. I love lighthouses. They are sort of one of my my big sort of benchmarks for comfort are lighthouses. And another one are herons. Um, I that's my bird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so having a having a heron in the story, um, the heron kind of replaced uh, some of the the talking socks. And then dishrag is where the rest of them went. <laughs> um, dishrag is just. You know, he's, he's my pony. He's he, and a couple of beta readers the first time through were like, you shouldn't have a pony in a kid's story. That's just too trite. And I just looked at them and apparently I looked really mad when I said it. And I was like, the pony stays. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. Yeah, love awesome. it. So my next question, it leads us into like, you know, you've talked about like your time of being in a community and also teaching, which leads us to, um, I want you to talk about Western's program of genre writing, you know, um, why, you know, you decided to tackle it on and what, you know, about the program itself. And then, you know, what it's been, what it's been doing for you, like personally and professionally, like how your thoughts are. Okay. Um, So I became the director of the genre fiction MFA at Western Colorado University. in May of 2019. Um, I have been teaching my entire life. I have taught in graduate programs. I've taught in high schools and colleges. Um, I am, I occasionally do visiting writer gigs. I'm doing one at Randolph College uh, next month where I go in and just talk to students and work with them. But um, I had been interviewing for teaching positions again because I really wanted to get back in the classroom. I missed it. And I wanted to do something that was an academic program with a focus on popular writing in particular because it's something that I know very well. But it's also something that I don't know is necessarily getting as much support from um, academic MFA programs as it, it, it could possibly get. Um, genre fiction is its own beast and its own 
um, methodology and its own philosophy. And it it works very well with other types of writing. Co-studying with other types of writing is, is amazing when you're talking about genre fiction. Um, so I was looking for programs like that. And there are a couple of them, and they're great. But um, I had been asked to be the guest of honor uh, writing the Rockies, which was Western's um, feature summer event. And as I was talking to them, they asked me if I was, they heard that I was interviewing for teaching jobs and they asked me if I'd like to interview with them as well. And I said, tell me a little bit more about your program because I didn't know a lot. And the, um, the website was kind of clear and kind of unclear at the same time. So they sat down and walked me through the syllabus and I was amazed. This was what I was looking for in a lot of ways. Um, one of the, it's a two and a half year program and it sits, um, the genre fiction concentration is one of five concentrations in the creative writing department at Western. There's screenwriting, there's nature writing, there's poetry, um, there's publishing and publishing is a one-year master's. The rest are all two and a half year MFAs. And then there's genre fiction and genre fiction is the, the, big old one that's been um, at Western for 10 years and it fills up very fast. It is, uh, we, we start, we're, we're already um, looking at applications uh, and our, we have an early enrollment period. Um, this is something that we started last year because we want people to know that they're in. Um, if they, if they apply in the fall, um, you will hear by usually January that you're in and then, you know, you can move forward with your life from there and start making plans. Um, but the, the, the thing that really got me was the focus of study was on all the genres. It's not just on, you know, you don't just come in to write that one manuscript with one or two teachers. You study popular fiction across romance and mystery and espionage and Westerns and cool. um, sci-fi and fantasy and a horror. And we just started the graphic novel section last year. Uh, which went really well. And I'm, I'm just waiting for the first person to do their thesis in a graphic novel format. That's going to be amazing. That sounds awesome. But the, the, the kicker is that in doing this, in studying, reading and writing, because the value of an MFA is it gives you a deep dive into the literature of your field while you are engaged in writing it. And to do this with, with all of genre, across all of the formats, you learn different tools and techniques that are going to strengthen your work currently, but you also gain the flexibility to become many different kinds of writers across the course of a career. And that's what I was talking about before, about making your own luck by being as flexible as possible. And so this curriculum, as I was being shown it, had so many of these aspects already. And we came in, when when I came in, we reformed a couple of things. We, we um, elevated uh, the thesis process so that there, it's now sort of begins in the spring of your first year. Um, but it actually starts in the fall because while you are studying all of the different formats, you're writing pitches and synopses for what novel you would write in this field. Wow. So everybody wow. writes uh, just a you know, one-page pitch for the novel that they might like to write in romantic suspense. And everybody's going to write one in thrillers. And everyone's going to write a procedural. And it's just a one-pager. But at the end of your first year uh, at Western, you have approximately 15 semi-polished uh, pitches for things that you might write. 
And when you go forward to work on your thesis the year after, you propose three. Mm. And they can be anything. They can be the, you know, the thing that you have wanted to write your entire life. They can be from the selection of pitches that you've developed. It can be something completely different. But you propose three to the thesis committee. You discuss it. The decision is made as a group. Nothing's handed down to you and prescribed. And then your thesis advisor is assigned. So you're carrying forward everything that you learned that first year into your thesis the second year. And the, the thesis year is great and very intense because you're writing a novel. And you're taking a short story class in the fall and a business for writers class in the spring, plus a pedagogy and practice uh class in the spring, which isn't just about teaching, although it is about teaching writing. It's also about um, managing a school visit or doing a bookstore you know, event with interactivity. So you're really doing the business of writing as part of your MFA study. Um, that second year, you also do an out-of-concentration class. So you, and um, you can take a class in poetry, you can take a class in screenwriting, you can take a class in publishing, you can take a class in nature writing. And so all of it kind of works together in, in everybody's brains to make this really powerful tool set that you leave the program with, along with your manuscript, and all of the stories that you've written in the program, and all the connections and community you've made. That's amazing. And that's an amazing opportunity to have as a genre writer. Sure. Um, if, you know, I will be the first to tell you, you do not need an MFA to write a book. Mm -hmm. You don't. You don't need an MFA to get an agent. What you need an MFA for is the two years of focused study with a group of experts and a certain plan of attack for how to study it. A cohort that you are joining that is also engaged in that same focused course of study. And a program that's going to support you and and sort of have your back. And Western is, um, you know, we're we are adding more scholarships, um, merit scholarships. We we don't do full rides, but we do do partial uh, merit scholarships. We were adding a lot more programming um, and different ways to out reach out to people. We did some independent study things this summer. Um, that's not a phrase. We did independent study work this summer where students were able to work on, um, you know, researching material that was relevant to their thesis, um, which was really excellent along the way. And then um, every summer we do a two-week residency. It is normally in Gunnison, Colorado, in one of the most beautiful parts of the country, right at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. It's stunning. Um, it's an elevation of 8,000 feet. So it's also kind of stunning in the way that you can't catch your breath for the first day mm -hmm. or so if you're coming from like me. Um, and then it, that two and a half weeks or that two weeks is just focused study, immersive, you know, immersing yourself in readings and, and writing and work with your colleagues. Um, it is also a face-to-face -face opportunity where you go do, you know, things out in the area and then everybody goes home. Um, one of the things about Western is it is a low residency program that it makes it accessible to lots of different people. People, We have a student from Hawaii this year. We have a student who was studying in Vietnam last year. Wow. Um, it also is accessible from a disability standpoint. I am mobility limited. And, you know, it is tough getting around sometimes in the mountains um, with a cane, but it teaching throughout the year, I'm not there in the winter, so I don't have to worry about the ice and the snow and the cold. 
Um, and I, I don't have to move. I didn't have to relocate. And none of my students do either. So their lives aren't disrupted. They, they are still engaging in being teachers and working and supporting their families. Um, and they are figuring out how to fit the MFA and the writing life into their lives. It's not a you have to give up your life in order to do an MFA program. It is a, this is exactly what the writing life is always going to be. There will be demands on your time. There will be play times and points where you need to go and earn money and make and have a job in something that is not necessarily writing your novel. And we're going to show you how to keep being a writer while you're doing all those things. So that's Western in a nutshell. It's um, the students are amazing. The classes that we're teaching are amazing. We have um, Kat Howard, who is phenomenal. Eric Smith is joining us this fall um, to co-teach with me. Nalo Hopkinson is thesis advising, and she's going to co-teach with me in the spring. Carlos Hernandez teaches there uh, on occasion. He's thesis advising again this year. Um, Candace Naden is absolutely outstanding. Uh, she teaches in, in the Front Range uh, in Colorado and then teaches pedagogy for us. And uh, Rick Wilbert is uh, teaching in the summer session and also thesis advising. And he's our thesis coordinator, which is a new position wow. um, where it's, he's basically acts as the, the support beacon for everybody throughout the whole thesis approval process. So it's a really tight knit program. Um, we do have a lot of extras that we do. Like I said, we added the, um, the, the graphic novel component this year. Mm -hmm. It's a whole, we, we study it. Um, we talk, we take a look at, um, the notes that writers give to their illustrators and the conversation that happens back and forth between illustrators and writers. Wow. Um, we have, uh, there is a point where um, I have shared what a copy edit looks like, what, you know, for me, but not just the copy edit, but the notes, um, the in-house notes that, you know, what, that I got for Updraft and how um, amazingly precise they are and how exacting that job needs to be in order to be done well. Um, I'm about to do that with some, with a, some of my students and that'll freak them out properly, <laughs> which is good. Um, because you've, you know, the, the job, the, the understanding the job of being a writer these days means also knowing what other people are doing in order to make your book look good. So understanding what a copy editor does is vital, not just if you want to go ahead and be a copywriter to earn some money, but also so that you can work with copywriters and thank them profusely when they are doing a good job for you, because it's very important. For me, this has meant that my focus is now split. Uh, when I When I took this job, I said, I can't I I will not give up my writing life. Mm -hmm. I need to be able to publish books and teach at the same time. And it is a big job. Directing a program like this is an enormous job and it's an honor and it is something that I do not take lightly. Um, I'm always looking for how we can how we can sort of strengthen the program, um, make it stronger and better. This year we're doing a, a map of where we are and where we want to be um, programmatically and structurally so that we are constantly um, teaching the subject as it exists, not just as it, it was five years ago, but we're teaching what things look like now. Um, we constantly revamp, revamp our reading lists. We constantly re-engage and bring faculty in and students, not students, speakers in from all over the community, um, which is really exciting. 
Um, but it's a lot. And it's sometimes very hard to balance that with my writing deadlines. Um, I had, I left, we finished, we did a virtual residency this year, which was really intense, but it was amazing. We made a community in the ether, Mm. which is really hard to do. Mm -hmm. I think um, the best that I've seen for a con was the nebulas. The nebulas were amazing. Um, We did a really good good job our um our our department sent out residencies in a box to everybody which came with some coffee and a mug and you know little pieces of western but it also had a sign that you could put on the door that said in residency so that everybody else in your house would know that you've gone to the away place and are not available and that sort of (laughs) ability to draw a line around your space and say i'm working is what being in residency is all about um, and that's why you get on a plane and go somewhere to go to a writing workshop is to go away and focus. So we were trying to recreate that for our students. And, you know, it, it's tough. It is a really hard time to be doing this, but it's also a really valuable time to be doing it. And so I poured a lot of my time this spring into making sure my students were doing okay. I had, you know, one hour meetings with every single one of them this spring um, just to see where they were and how they were doing as well as, you know, checking to make sure they were turning in the work and doing okay. And we're going to keep doing that because that's really important. That's awesome. So, um, program sounds amazing. Western <laughs> just moved up to my number one spot. Yay! Uh, it's been in my top five for a while. And I know Will now, you should do the graphic novel when you when you apply. All right. So I am aware of the time. So why don't we... Um, jump onto our very last thing, which is basically like, what can you tell us about what you have coming up? Oh, sure. Well, let me just tell you one thing about the Western application process, which is our, um, we tell everybody who's interested in applying to apply early and um, do so because we fill up. Um, We hit our cap and we had a waiting list last year that um, that is probably going to happen again. So we are encouraging everybody apply early um, early, uh, early consideration period ends November 28th. And, um, that is the, the first sort of pivot point. And I know that October they're waiving application fees as well. So that's pretty, um, okay. pretty key as far as ha- that when people start sort of flowing towards us for applications, uh, we have a second uh, admission period that happens in the spring that will um, make sure that, you know, you can stay in line for all of the the uh, scholarships and different things that are possibly available. But the early consideration period is usually where we get the bulk of our applications. So if you're thinking about it for this year, definitely get in there, um, start your application, and we'd love to see you. Um, what do I have coming up? I have a couple short stories that I'm really excited about. I am part of a couple of anthologies. I am um, one of Uncanny Magazine's writers for next year. So I've got a short story for them that I totally have to write. Awesome. Um, awesome. I'm finishing the Book of Gems, which is the third book in the Gemworld series, which started with the, the Jewel in Her Lapidary. And um, that is going to be eventually a collection of short stories and novels and novelettes. Um, I'm not sure what shape it's going to take because I'm still finishing the Book of Gems, but that's uh, that's pretty complicated. And I'm glad that I have the time to reexamine it in in the lens of uh, the pandemic. Unfortunately, um, it, the pandemic has changed 
so many things. And also just the political situation has changed so many things. You can't just write a, you know, the novel that you were working on six months ago, everything changed and had to, to shift. And the book of gems has changed because of that. Um, the big thing that's coming out next year, Riverland will be available in paperback um, in May, which I'm very excited about. Means that, yeah, exactly. I'm I am awesome. looking forward to that. It's available for pre-order already. Um, if you want to send something to uh, somebody and gift them a paperback pre-order, um, I will have some different Riverland associated swag for Christmas that you can send along. Um, but the other thing is the ship of stolen words, which is coming out mm -hmm. June one. Um, and it's coming out June one because the story begins on the last day of fifth grade for my main character, Sam, um, who uh -huh. is, uh, a, a, it, it's, I love writing this story. Sam's got a great family. They're super supportive. He's, you know, got an amazing teacher and he knows exactly how to get in tr out of trouble all the time, which is to say, sorry. He knows if you say sorry, then you're out of trouble. <laughs> and that's working for him really well until goblins steal the word from him. And the goblins steal the word and suddenly he can't apologize for anything. And that begins the story. And it's um, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. The Ship of Stolen Words is about Sam and how he gets his words back. But it's also about a goblin named Tolver who is the word stealing goblin, but he is just dying for adventure. And um, so it's, it's more about a, a budding friendship between two people from different sides of a portal. It, again, it's a portal fantasy. Um, there's mm -hmm. a magical little free library that is where the goblins come through. And um, there are, uh, I can pretty much say this without spoiling anything. There are um, flying pigs and there <laughs> are giant airships and, um, the, it's, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, I have never had so much fun writing this kind of book before, but it's just got adventure and mud and mess and <laughs> words. And, and it, it's mostly about the importance of words and using them, not just right, but learning how to use them. So messing up is part of it too. And, um, it's about the value of friendship as well, but it, just it's a it's a book about language there's a cameo by an oxford english dictionary in there that makes me really happy so that sounds so cool that's awesome yep, it's up for pre-order <laughs> please tell all your friends to pre-order early and often where's the best place to pre-order that that's um there are many i uh recommend um going to abrams um kids website and um, there is a whole list there, but your local bookstore is a great place to pre-order. Um, I always tell people that the bookstore you are happiest and most comfortable ordering from is the best place to pre-order. There are For many, sure. many bookstores. Um, bookshop.org is great. I actually have started making some reading lists on bookshop.org, but they're great. Um, IndieBound is fantastic. That's a great link to your locals. If you have a local bookstore that you use, that's wonderful. Um, Abrams has a couple of other links as well. Um, if you're out on the West Coast, I have some favorite bookstores out there that I have appeared in, and they, I'm sure they would be happy to take your order. I have to start thinking about what I'm going to do for pre-orders this year because I have no idea how to do this, but I'm going to I'm going to do something cool. <laughs> Every other book that I have ever launched has had a necklace associated with it. And I don't oh. know how you do a flying pig necklace, but I kind of really <laughs> want to do it. 
Um, and I want to do something that's not necessarily, I, I want to do something that's gender neutral. And like mm-hmm. the Riverland necklace was this big pendant with a lighthouse in it. And um, there were some other uh, Riverland associated things that were much more gender neutral. But um, with the ship of stolen words, I'm looking at, I'm looking at some options that would be much more gender neutral because that's important too. That's amazing. I can't awesome. wait for to read the book. I, can't, <laughs> I already pre-ordered it actually. Did you see the cover? The cover is amazing. It is amazing. Oh. Yeah. It looks so good. It looks so good. Pigs on the cover. Um. <laughs> I love it. So I've, I have one last question and it's just, you know, uh, ask me what, what keeps name? you writing? Oh my God. <laughs> well, after that, yeah, totally. What's your dragon's name? So the dragon, there's a personal purple dragon that's sitting over my shoulder. Um, I got this dragon at Dragon Con. The, the woman who made them is amazing. It actually has a prehensile tail so you can wear it and wrap the tail around your shoulders and the wings. Oh, that's oh my God, I love um, it. But I didn't know what I was going to call it. And the first time I was on the ballot for the nebulas was for updraft. And I had just got mm-hmm. this dragon a uh, little while before that. And I was going and I was nervous. And I asked the internet to name my dragon. Don't <laughs> let the internet name your pet. <laughs> this is Maximilian Von Dragon McDragonface. And <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That's great. I love that it's a purple dragon. That's my favorite thing. Purple dragons. My, I love purple and I love dragons. And my that's king awesome. is purple also. And I oh, nice. find that when I am traveling, it is useful to have a dragon attached to your bag so that you can talk to kids about the purple dragon and then sure. they can ask about the cane as well. And it makes it easier if I'm feeling talkative. If I'm not, then I just, you know, <laughs> talk to the dragon. That's awesome. That's <laughs> talk to awesome. The dragon. <laughs> that's so, what so cool. Your last what just keeps you writing? Like when things are good, when things are bad, what just keeps you writing? Habit and process. And if I don't write, then the words pile up and um, then it's a mess. Kind of, you know, you have to sh- go out and shovel the leaves every once in a while. But I try to write every day and just, you know, put something creative down because that's the way that I engage with the world. Um, and if I'm not writing, I'm drawing. Uh, I have, um, you can find me by the way at franwild.net. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Fran underscore wild. And I do have a Patreon. Um, and I, I love my subscribers. I just sent out a huge Mm -hmm. mailing to them. Um, there are certain levels of rewards on my Patreon where I do note cards of the art that I made. I post like everybody on on Patreon gets like first view of anything that I post art wise anywhere else. But sometimes I don't post things except for them. And then they get to vote on what note cards that they want me to print. And then I put them all in the mail and I send them out. Um, and I think that that, is for me a part of being part of the community is making art and reaching out to people, but also making things that people can use to reach out to other people. I love it. That sounds like a great way to get out to your Patreon members. That's amazing. Well, we'll definitely include all of those links in our show notes for this episode. And we can't, can't thank you enough for being on the show. It's been awesome talking to you. Oh, thank you guys. It has been such a pleasure. And I hope I get to talk to you all again soon. Same here. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming, Fran. Okay. Well, thank you for asking me. Yeah, of Bye, course. Nick. Bye, Marshall. Great to meet you, friend. Take care. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. This has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers by writers to keep you writing. Check out our website at justkeepwriting.org. You can find links to our social media and Discord channel in the show notes, as well as any other links mentioned during the show. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. Thanks for listening. Now just keep writing. Thank <laughs> you.